Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join guest speaker Rod Seib, who will speak on Luke 18, verses 35 to 43, with this message from August 18th titled, A Blind Beggar Receives His Sight. If you were here, I think it was three weeks ago, um, I spoke and I shared about um, a passage where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And this morning we want to look at kind of another, something I would call an encounter with Jesus uh, from the Gospels. And in a couple of weeks I'll be back here again and sharing another encounter with Jesus. Um, This morning we want to look at a passage in Luke chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, or if it's up on the screen, you can um, follow along with that. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 18, verses 35 to 43. And I'll just uh, read from that. So I think it's also in your bulletin on the back page, so you can follow along there if you don't have a Bible. Luke 18.35 says, As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Well, this passage comes at the end of Luke chapter 18. And uh, just to kind of give a survey, a little bit of a context or background in starting in chapter 18, you have uh, the parable of the persistent widow. And Jesus tells this parable about this widow who goes to a judge and asks for help. Um, I guess uh, she doesn't have the help of her husband, has passed away, and she refers to an adversary, you know, give me justice uh, against my adversary, and goes to this judge, and the judge doesn't really take action at first. But because the widow is persistent, Eventually, the judge relents and and helps her. And then there's a story Jesus teaches about humility, uh, a story of the Pharisee and the tax collector go to the temple and pray. And I think two weeks ago, in the children's uh, video that we had that morning, that was the exact story that was shown, if you remember that. These two uh, men that go to the temple to pray, the tax collector, who was uh, very proud of how he lived his life and how he prayed before God, and then the tax collector in his humility, asking God to have mercy on him because he was a sinner. Then Luke goes on, uh, or Luke goes on to recount this story of how people were bringing children to him, and in some translations it says babies, infants, who were bringing very young children to see Jesus and to be blessed by Jesus. And the disciples were saying, you know what, uh, maybe not, maybe not do that. Maybe Jesus doesn't have time for that. But Jesus rebukes them and says, you know, they are welcome and that we need to be children if we are to enter the kingdom of God. And then we find uh, an incident recorded which Jesus 
uh, or Luke records this incident of a rich young ruler that comes to Jesus with a question about inheriting eternal life and, you know, what must I do? And Jesus said, you know, you know the laws, you know the commandments. And this ruler said, you know, I've kept all these from when I was young and uh, lived a good life. But Jesus says, you know what, there's still one thing you lack, sell all your possessions and give to the poor and follow me. Well, this rich young ruler didn't really like that answer. And finally, we come to, um, after that, um, the place where Jesus foretells his suffering and his death to the disciples. And he explains how, you know, they're at this point, they're in the latter half of Jesus' earthly ministry, they're on the road, they're moving toward Jerusalem. And Jesus knows exactly what's about to come. And he's trying to tell the disciples about his uh, impending uh, suffering and his death and his resurrection. But it says here, the disciples didn't understand it, that it was hidden from them. This meaning was hidden from them. He didn't know what, they didn't know what he was talking about. So before we get into the passage we read this morning, let's just talk about that a little bit. Like, what does it mean that they didn't understand? I mean, Jesus is trying to tell them. How could they not know? They had lived with Jesus for three years, walked with Jesus, seen what Jesus was doing. But when Jesus talks about what's to come, they didn't quite get it. Well, there's a couple of explanations. One is that God purposely or intentionally hid that from him. And there are other cases in, in the Gospels when Jesus did a miracle and he instructed the person, you know, don't tell anyone. Uh, he did the miracle. He did a miracle of healing or whatever. But he said, you know, don't, don't tell anyone. He didn't want to move God's agenda ahead faster than what God had planned out. But I'm not sure that was the case here in the sense that, uh, you know, Jesus does try to tell them, tries to prepare them. So I'm not sure if that was the case. Uh, second reason why sometimes uh, the disciples didn't get it was that they were too focused on what, just what they wanted to see. And many have speculated that even the disciples who did walk with Jesus were still looking for the Messiah's uh, physical kingdom to come and to overturn the Roman Empire. And that, some have speculated, certainly was uh, maybe Judas's thinking in, in his actions in betraying Jesus, is that that was a way to force Jesus' hand to bring in the actual physical kingdom. Another explanation is that perhaps the disciples just weren't yet tuned in spiritually to, this, uh, to the spiritual aspect of Jesus' mission and ministry. So for these last two reasons, uh, maybe that's true of us sometimes. Uh, I don't know if you have found that. I've, I've found that in my own life. I've been a Christian probably since I was six, six, seven years old. I think it was sometime in that area where I started asking questions and I remember being in my parents' bedroom and my mom was there and I was asking my mom some questions and in that moment, she led me to accept Christ into my life. And that's where I consider my life as a Christian started. And I'm, I just turned 58 last month. So for 52 years, I've been a Christian. But in those 52 years, I have to be honest that I haven't always lived um, walking closely with God. Sometimes I have, sometimes I haven't. I've gone through cycles. I've gone through places of, uh, you know, times of spiritual dryness, places where I just didn't really desire God or didn't really seek him. Other times I did. Other times I walked with God and experienced the blessings that he promised in walking with God. 
And so I found sometimes when I'm like that, when I'm not tuned into God, when I'm not, I, I've heard this you know, term, when I'm not pressing into him, when I'm not really seeking him, that there's a lot that I just miss, a lot I don't understand. Or when I did read the Bible, a lot I didn't get. But it was in those times when I was really, really seeking God, when I was really desiring God, really spending time in prayer, that God then opened up my eyes to see a lot of the deeper truths. And so I think that's kind of the case here, that maybe the disciples you know, saw a lot of the physical things that were going on, but in, in, for some of them, they just weren't really getting it. Well, at this point, Jesus and the disciples are approaching Jericho, the passage says, and Jesus has performed many miracles already, and he spent a lot of time teaching the crowds, and his reputation precedes him. So there's a big crowd gathering around. Other places in the gospel, it says, too, the crowds gathered around him. And in this case, in Luke 18, the crowd may have been even bigger than usual because it was approaching Passover. And so there were probably a lot of other people on the road traveling as well as they're heading toward Jerusalem. In any case, Luke records this encounter, Jesus' encounter, with a single blind beggar. Now, in this account, it doesn't say the beggar's name, but in a parallel account in Mark 10, we learn that the beggar's name was Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus, though blind, could certainly hear the commotion of the crowd that was approaching. And so he asks, what is happening? And when he's told that's that it is Jesus that's passing by, he immediately cries out to Jesus for help and for mercy from Jesus. And it's at this point then in the rest of this passage that we can see, learn some things that about what God is doing and about how God wants us to seek him. The first thing we learn is that I think we need to remember that we seek Jesus or we seek God out of our place of need. We seek God out of our place of need. Verse 35 says, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. It's important to note that Bartimaeus was not only blind, but he was poor. Of course, being blind or having a disability in some way, those that were lame or couldn't walk, um, those were the ones that typically would have to beg and have to rely on others because they couldn't provide for themselves. And so they were just often by the roadside calling out to anyone who passed by for someone to just give them something so that they could buy bread or other basic needs. So when we think about this, that we seek God out of our place of need, it's maybe not a point that we need to take some kind of immediate direct action on, but I think it's a spiritual principle that just helps us to remember and understand our place before our Creator God. In a sense, whenever we seek God, it's always from the roadside, so to speak, isn't it? A place of alienation or aloneness as we struggle with our need, seeking for help. And in coming to know God, it's God himself from whom we seek that help. Bartimaeus daily routine was to ask for help from passers-by, but when he learned that Jesus was near, he did not hesitate to call out for help from the Lord himself. Do we not recognize that we are in the same place of need, a place of humility, recognizing that what we need comes from God and God alone? Do we turn to God himself whenever we cry out for help? Do we see ourselves in a place where we can cry out to God, as Bartimaeus did? Have mercy on me, he says. Do we even understand what that means? Do we understand how and why and when and where we need God's mercy? Or have we been so blessed that we have slipped over that line 
into a feeling of complacency and self-sufficiency, that we have forgotten what it means to be in such need that we have to cry out to God for mercy. Unfortunately, I think for many of us, it's not until we are in a place of complete helplessness that we, that we then think of crying out to God for help. Usually when life has spun completely out of control and we have nowhere else to turn, right? Too often, God is our last resort when he should be our first. I think that's just the way our human nature is. When we're blessed, when we have everything we need, it's hard to really cry out to God to understand that we still need God on a daily basis. This idea of crying out to God has been a lesson I've learned. Uh, I haven't, again, I've gone through cycles. I haven't always cried out to God, but it's been in those times of real desperate need that I have. One time I remember when uh, Eileen and I first got married and um, a couple of years after we got married, we joined Send International. We felt God's call in our lives to be missionaries in Taiwan. And Send was at that time, or still is, called what, what we call a faith mission, where you have to raise support. You have to raise the needed financial support to go. And you had to collect pledges from people and churches that would pledge uh, 100% of the support needed before we could buy our plane tickets and go. And we were told, I remember this clearly, we were told by those that coached us through that, that this was a spiritual exercise, this was a spiritual task. And I don't know that I fully grasped that. I learned the tools, you know, approaching it in a kind of a business way, how to do fundraising, how to write good letters, how to communicate with people. And I remember we started, you know, that initial excitement, we got support in, and we got to about 40%, I remember, uh, very clearly, uh, I think it was like around 1989, 1990, we got to about 40% of our support and then we stalled out. It stalled there like for months. We didn't get any new support and I started struggling. I started doubting God and I really struggled with that. And I remember at one point, uh, we were, I was at home, I think Eileen was out. I, I had, this was before we had kids, I was by myself, I was in the house and I was praying. And I just remember being moved to literally crying out to God out of that place of need. And I was literally prostrate on the floor, on the ground, on my stomach, face to the ground, weeping, crying before God, saying, God, we need you. We need you to do this. If this is truly your calling on our lives, we can't do this without you. And for me, that was a turning point. That was a place where I needed to get to before we began to see the rest of the uh, support come in. It still took a while, but God was faithful and God provided, and we eventually got to Taiwan. I think this understanding and recognition of our place of need before God and our daily willingness to seek his grace and mercy is a good place to start. We have to remember that, that no matter what we have, we are never fully self-sufficient, that we need God. Another point that comes out in this passage is that when we seek Jesus, there will be some who will try to quiet us. If you look in verse 9, why did some in the crowd try to silence Bartimaeus? Were they embarrassed by him? Did they feel he was too lowly for Jesus to care about? Did they genuinely not want Jesus to be bothered with this man? And it kind of goes back to that earlier in the chapter where people were bringing children to Jesus and says the disciples rebuked those people and then Jesus rebuked the disciples saying, no, let them come. So I don't know if it was the disciples here that were telling Bartimaeus to be quiet or if it was others, it says those that were leading in the crowd. But in any case, there were those that were trying to keep him quiet, trying to silence him. 
So let's think about this for a moment. In your life, have you ever seen that or witnessed that, this kind of a thing, where someone attempts to seek God, attempts to press deeper into him, maybe their conversations turn more spiritual, maybe they're talking about God more, and yet other people in that person's life try to discourage them in some way. Again, I remember specifically in my life, shortly after, again, Eileen and I were married and I was working at the co-op and uh, I worked with some other young guys at that time, uh, most of them single, and I tried to be a witness to them. I, I wasn't pushy, but I tried to share my faith in little ways and they all knew I was a Christian, they all knew I attended this church. Most of them weren't interested. They didn't really hear what I had to say. But there was one young fellow that was interested, and he would ask me questions, and uh, he would converse with me about spiritual things. Well, nothing's really private when you work together, and when the other guys heard this, when the other guys knew that this other individual was interested and was talking with me about spiritual things, they ridiculed him, they mocked him, they uh, responded in a way in any way they could to try to discourage him from actually talking to me about the Christian faith. So why do some people do that? I think there's a bunch of reasons. I think first of all, it makes them uncomfortable because maybe it forces them, once they see somebody else uh, showing their need, crying out to God about their need, it might bring up feelings for them or an awareness that they're in need as well. And they're not comfortable with that. Maybe they don't like that. And so they oppose it. Or maybe they downplay God's interest in our lives, saying, you know what? Why would God be interested in you? Why would God be interested in me? Or even if he is interested, maybe another reason is they, they doubt God's ability to do anything. Saying, why waste your time? God's not going to help. Look at all the suffering in the world that God does nothing about. Why would he do anything for you? Or maybe they mock or ridicule that person seeking God because uh, they say, you know, you're weak then. You have to rely on God. Your Christian faith is a crutch. It's just something you need because you're weak and you need God as an excuse for something to lean on. Or another reason is maybe they transfer their hostility toward God to that person. Again, it brings up kind of the feelings of hate that they've had. Maybe when they were young or growing up, they had a bad experience, right? Maybe they saw hypocrisy in, in someone, or maybe they just hate God for whatever reason. And so when they see somebody seeking God, they transfer that hostility toward that other person. For whatever reasons, we have to remember that when we seek God, there may be somebody in our lives, somebody around us, that might try to discourage us. And it might be very, it might, be, might not be the open uh, mocking or ridiculing. Sometimes it might be very subtle. But we have to realize that sometimes when we seek God, others aren't going to always understand, and they might try to quiet us. Well, this leads us to the next point that we see in this passage. So when it comes to seeking God's work in our lives, we should be prepared to be persistent. Be prepared to be persistent. So when people in that crowd rebuked Bartimaeus and told him to be quiet, what did he do? Did he, be, did he stop crying out? No, he didn't. Verse 39, it says, but he shouted all the more. He shouted all the more. It's interesting to note that at the beginning of this very same chapter, again, we did that survey, that Jesus tells us the parable of the persistent widow. And if you have your Bibles, you can read through that. I'm not going to read through that, but 
There we see the persistence of that widow in continuing to cry out to this judge for justice. It reminds me of another passage. Uh, if you have your Bibles, Luke 11. Uh, there is account, the account where Jesus uh, says, starting in verses 5 and 6, and I'm, I want to read from the message version of that. It says, Jesus said, Imagine what would happen if you went to a friend in the middle of the night and said, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. An old friend traveling through just showed up and I don't have a thing on hand. The friend answers from his bed, don't bother me, the door's locked. My children are all down for the night. I can't get up to give you anything. But let me tell you, even if he won't get up because he's a friend, if you stand your ground knocking and waking all the neighbors, he'll finally get up and give you whatever you need. Here's what I'm saying. Ask and you'll get. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will open. In all these instances, we see one prevailing truth, that persistence in seeking God and God being compelled to meet the petitioner's need or request because of that persistence. But let's ask ourselves this morning, let me ask you, is that a strange way to think of God? This notion that if we don't get what we want initially, that we just keep asking? That's all we need to do? Do we have trouble with that? What's the danger of seeing God in that way? We don't get because we haven't asked enough or in the right way, maybe. We didn't pray in the right posture or position. The danger of that is then we start to see God as a Wizard of Oz type of figure. But James, in the book of James, it says clearly in James 4.2, you don't have because you do not ask. But then what does James go on to say? He says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. So just take a moment this morning to reflect on this and say, how persistent have I been in asking God? But then also to think about what are your motives? What are your motives for asking? Do you give up praying for something just because you don't get an immediate answer? Do you persist in your prayers because you are convinced it's the right thing to ask? Something you know you would, that would align with God's will as revealed in his word. Look to the example of Bartimaeus. He never gave up. And what was the response? Jesus asked him something very relevant and something very personal. Leads us to the next point. To understand that God invites us to tell him what we want. Now this miracle of Jesus healing Bartimaeus' sight, I think is the only miracle recorded in the Gospels where Jesus first asks the person, what do you want me to do for you? There is a passage in the first chapter of John's Gospel where it says that uh, two of John the Baptist's disciples uh, saw Jesus and you know, hearing what John the Baptist was saying about Jesus, um, started following him. And uh, I mean literally following him physically you know, on the road or on the path. And at that point, Jesus turns around and says to them, what do you want? But in the case with the blind beggar, Jesus specifically says, what do you want me to do for you? Now let's not hurry over this point too quickly. Think about it. Let it sink in. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Uh, we've used ASL, American Sign Language, with Aaron, and I was thinking, how do you say that in sign language? Because that's a visual. And Jesus might have said to a deaf person, uh, what do you want me to do for you? 
What do you want me to do for you? Again, think about it for a minute. Does this question from Jesus seem out of place or unnecessarily? Surely Jesus knew what Bartimaeus wanted. He was blind. What do you, what do you think Bartimaeus wanted? Yet Jesus takes the time to ask Bartimaeus first, what do you want me to do for you? Even if Jesus did know, he didn't make any assumptions, but he respected Bartimaeus in giving him the opportunity to actually tell Jesus what he wanted. Let's bring that back to us. Are we guilty of going through our days, indeed going through life, where we make the assumption on a daily basis that God knows what we want, so we don't have to tell him? We may, again, we may not say that explicitly in those words, but maybe we live life that way. If there's one thing clear from the Bible, well, there's many things clear from the Bible, but this is also clear from the Bible, that God wants us to tell him what we want, what we need. When we were missionaries in Taiwan, I have a very clear memory of a time when the men of Send International, all the men, the husbands, single men, we went away for a retreat. And for a weekend, we went to this, um, it was a monastery, I guess. It was uh, building a place, very beautiful, secluded, quiet ground, uh, kind of a dormitory-style building that was started by Catholic missionaries years ago. And we rented that for a while. And I remember, that weekend, you know, we were each to just really seek God. We had times together as a men's group, but a lot of that time we just spent in these very bare rooms where there was nothing but a single bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. And we had our Bibles with us, and we were to just spend hours alone with God, seeking God. And I remember coming to this passage and reading this, and when I got to this point where it says that Jesus asked Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Holy Spirit just gave me a profound impression of what that meant, of what that meant for God inviting us to just tell him. And what a picture that was of intimacy, you know, of a father inviting a child to sit beside him, you know, come here, sit beside me on the couch. What would you like? What would you want me to do for you? I want to tell the story, we're running out of time, but one, one thing on my bucket list was that I wanted to learn how to play the violin. And one day, we were living in London, Ontario. This is when I was working in the mission office in London, Ontario. And I was driving to Toronto for a meeting. I was by myself in the car. Spent the time thinking about my life and what I still wanted to do. And somehow this came up. And I, I had thought of this a few times before. Like, I have a guitar, I have a banjo, I have a mandolin. And I thought, you know, I'd really like to kind of learn to play violin, or at least try it. And I thought, right away, my negative thoughts started saying, well, that's probably never going to happen because you know, I don't have the money for a violin and whoever has a nice violin, like who's gonna give that? <laughs> who's gonna give me a violin? And as soon as I thought that, I almost audibly heard this voice from God saying, why didn't you ask me? And I thought, I looked around in the car, and I thought, did I hear that right? Again, it was such a clear voice from God. I knew it was from God and he was saying, why don't you just ask me for a violin? And I, again, thought, well, that's something selfish. I can't ask God for a violin. Like that's, I'm sure you've got many other things, better things that I should be asking you for. But I still heard that persisting. Just ask me, tell me what you want. So I prayed to say, okay, God, this is on my bucket list. The things I'd like to do before I die is have a violin to be able to play it and learn. So I prayed and I left it with him, went to my meeting in Toronto 
came home. A few days later, I went to Detroit where our main mission office was and I was leading uh, a seminar. They had workshop, you know, orientation for new missionaries that were preparing to go to the field. And I was leading one of those sessions on prayer. And I related this story, you know, telling them, emphasizing again, don't be afraid to tell God what you want. And I told them this story about the, you know, wanting to learn a violin. I shared that. Session was over. There was a young couple, an American couple, came to me and they were preparing to go to Russia. And she says to me, you know, we're, go we're getting ready to go to Russia. I have this violin that was given to me by my father. It's a very nice violin. I'm not taking it with us. Would you like to have it? while we're in Russia. And I said, absolutely, I would love to have it. And she gave me that violin, and I had it for a few years. I don't have it anymore. I give it back. It was a very nice violin. And I played a little bit on it. I didn't take lessons, but it was kind of like fulfilling that need, that desire that God answered that prayer because he invited me to just ask him. So Bartimaeus' response, I want to receive my sight. Isn't this only logical? To a blind person, what would be the thing they would want the most? As we sang in the worship song this morning, God is beauty to the blind man, riches to the poor. So what about a deaf person? Obviously they would ask Jesus to heal their hearing, sense of hearing. What about someone who could not walk? What about someone who's been without a job? and desperately needs to find employment. Or a person who's been estranged from their parents or maybe a parent estranged from their child and want more than anything to have that relationship restored. Or maybe it's someone who's lived in the throes of addiction and desires more than anything to be free of those chains. God is our rescuer. And it's, is it not the one thing that we need most that we should be persistently and repeatedly asking God for? So what about us today? Suppose if you went home from this church, you went home, you walked in your door and into your kitchen and Jesus was standing there and he says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you today? What would you say? Would you have to think about it? What's your most pressing need? How do you feel about telling God about that need? Are you comfortable with it? Or do you have some hesitation for some reason? Do you have the faith to believe that Jesus asks what you want because it's entirely within the power to grant what you ask for? And because he genuinely loves you. Christian author uh, Max Licato has said, the power of prayer is in the one who hears it, not in the one who says it. Again, returning to Luke 11, I read from the message there, those verses where Jesus says, here's what I'm saying, ask and you'll get, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will open. Don't bargain with God, be direct, ask for what you need. This is not a cat and mouse hide and seek game we're in. If your little boy asks for a serving of fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? If your little girl asks for an egg, do you trick her with a spider? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children, and don't you think the Father who conceived you in love will give you the Holy Spirit when you ask him? 
Indeed, this is really the most helpful way to look at it. A child asking a parent for something. The child often doesn't understand why or why not that parent might grant that request, but they have to trust. They just trust that the parent always has the best interest of the child at heart. We don't have to grapple with whether we deserve it or not. For so many years of my life, I agonized over this question. Do I deserve it or do I not deserve it? And how that affected how I approached God. But you know, that's not our, that's not our job to think about whether we deserve it or not. Our job is to just ask. God invites us to tell him what we want. Finally, quickly, the last point. God works on our, God's work in our lives will bring others into worship of him. Verse 40, verses 42 and 43 state several things very clearly. It says, it was the man's faith that restored his sight. Secondly, the man responded by praising God and following Jesus. And thirdly, others who witnessed the miracle also began to praise God. We see here a truth that is shown in other parts of scripture as well and in the world itself, that when God works powerfully in the lives of those who seek him, it draws that person into closer fellowship with and a more dynamic worship of, of the creator himself. This passage states that Bartimaeus immediately followed Jesus and praised God. But it's often not just the one in whom the work of God was displayed that is drawn into worship of him. When others see the work of God in their lives, they too will be moved to acknowledge and worship him. There are countless stories from the mission field of individuals, families, even whole communities that have come into a saving knowledge of God and a worship of him after witnessing a miracle or the clear work of God in some other way. Pick up any biography of a missionary, either recent or old, and you'll see the work of God and how that work in someone's life is one of the most powerful things that attracts others to God. One of my favorite Psalms, and I'm gonna close with this, um, it's a missional passage, and one of my favorite missional passages, which you wouldn't expect a missions topic to come from one of the Psalms. But in Psalm 67, it's a short Psalm, it contains some powerful truths about the connection between God's work and the drawing in of people from all nations to worship him. Psalm 67 says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest, God. Our God blesses us. May God bless us still, so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. When the Lord is at work in our lives or fulfills his promises to us in any way, like the work Jesus did for poor Bartimaeus, his glory, his splendor, his attributes, his love, his faithfulness are on display for the whole world to see. And when the world witnesses the true work of God, there is a response, a response of praise and worship. So this morning we have to look at, as we've looked at this one instance of a miracle performed in the life of one lowly, poor beggar, blind beggar, who lived over 2,000 years ago. This account tells us and reminds us some very important truths that when we see God, we start from our place of need, keenly aware of our need for his mercy. When we seek God, we sometimes may see people oppose us and try to quiet us. When seeking God, we must be prepared to be persistent, never giving up hope that God can meet our need. 
And remember that God genuinely loves us and invites us to tell him what we want. Never be afraid to simply share the deepest desires and concerns of your heart. And finally, when others witness God's work in our lives, they will be moved to worship him as well. God's work in your life is not just for you. He does love you, but it's for also for the glory of his name. I pray these truths will be a challenge and encouragement to you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. As Bartimaeus was thankful that you healed his sight and he worshiped and followed you and others saw that and worshiped and followed you. I pray that we would see how you are working in our lives and I pray that we would never be afraid to come to you with our deepest need. I pray that we would never be discouraged when others try to discourage us. And I pray that you would remind us every day that we are in that place of needing your mercy and that we would truly understand what that means and that we would live in a place of humility before you and a total dependence and reliance upon you. Father, thank you for this time together this morning. I pray that you would remind us of your love. Thank you for the work you were doing in our church. Thank you for the work you've done in me and thank you for the work that you've done in many others. There's so many good stories to be told, testimonies to be heard of how you're at work. And I pray that we would, we would see that and know that and know that you are God. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash tbcswanriver. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash templebaptistchurch or search on your favorite podcast app.